Lord, we gather in your name and we pray in your name that you'd open our hearts to hear from you this morning as we turn to your scriptures and we turn to this topic which runs throughout the scriptures, this theme that bubbles up so many points from the beginning to the end and particularly towards the end, the theme of hope. Would you speak to us today? May we have soft hearts and open minds. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Well, please uh, take a seat. And uh, happy Double Donut Day today. Nothing to do with COVID. I'm just wearing my uh, donut socks, two of them. Uh, married to a dietitian. I have to hide my treats um, on my socks, apparently. Uh, actually, no, that's not quite fair because Louise does enjoy a uh, cinnamon donut from time to time. All things in moderation. Is that right? Yes, yeah, don't tell anyone. The dietitian likes donuts. Um, mine are on my socks. Got nothing to do with what we're talking about today. <laughs> but happy days anyway. And welcome if you're watching online or on your phone uh, at home or elsewhere today. Uh, wonderful to have you with us and we hope you find uh, uh, that you feel welcome even though you're not immediately in our presence. And I certainly hope that you find uh, something that uh, connects with you and resonates with you uh, and is helpful to you today. Uh, if you were with us uh, a couple of weeks ago, two weeks ago today, uh, by the way, um, what did you think of last week with John Attia? How was that? Was that helpful? Um, what, uh, what an amazing guy, uh, intelligent, articulate, eloquent, um, and yet able to present things in a way that took complex ideas and, and made them really understandable. So uh, I'm so grateful for, for John. Uh, and his family uh, joining us last week, but John particularly in sharing his wonderful expertise uh, and thinking with us. But if you were with us the week before that, you, you may remember that I, I talked a little bit about Ukraine, which Louise mentioned earlier, we've decided as a global team to give uh, some funds through IJM towards. And uh, I talked a couple of weeks ago about um, some people that Lou and I know in the north, in the northern city of Chernihiv, um, who despite um, opportunities to leave, had decided that they were going to stay. Uh, and they decided that they were going to stay because they felt like God was calling them to serve and support their local community in the north. Now, I don't have any updates. I've not heard anything from them. And of course, conditions have worsened uh, since uh, in Chernihiv uh, and in some other parts of the country as well. So I just continue to pray for them. And up until yesterday uh, morning... I had not intended to talk again about Ukraine in this series, uh, even though it's sort of dominating our, our news cycle um, and in, for some of us dominating our prayers and thoughts at the moment. But two things happened this last week that m made it almost impossible for me to not talk about it today when we're talking about this topic of hope and Christian hope. And... Two things that happened were related. The first was that I exchanged a couple of emails uh, through the course of the week uh, with a friend of mine, uh, a Russian friend of mine. Uh, and she currently lives in a Western country, so she's able to access a lot more information about what's going on and also uh, able to uh, uh, speak more freely about what's going on than her family and, and friends who are back in Russia itself. Um, nevertheless, I'm not going to name her this morning because Russians currently, as many of you know, face very heavy fines, even jail time, just for calling the war in Ukraine a war in Ukraine. 
but I'm going to call her uh, Karina uh, for the sake of our discussion this morning. And I'll change just a few minor details of what I shared just to protect her and her family. Uh, I, I'm sure you understand. Well, Karina, like many Russians, has actually got family living in Ukraine. And in particular, she has an aunt and her aunt's family uh, who live in Mariupol in southern Ukraine. And as I'm sure you know, Mariupol has suffered a, a severe air, land and sea bombardment uh, in recent weeks. And uh, it's included the bombing of hospitals, theatres and other places where people were sheltering as well as re residential areas, as I'm sure you know. And Karina hasn't heard from her aunt or her aunt's family uh, in a number of weeks now and is, is very worried about their well-being. She doesn't even know if they're still alive. Communications are cut, so she's hoping that that's all that is stopping them hearing, uh, stopping her from hearing from them. And I've been praying, uh, of course, for her and her family as well as the other 100,000 or so people still in Chernihiv, uh, sorry, in Mariupol, uh, but still no word from her family. And then the second thing that happened that made me realise that I couldn't possibly talk about hope today without addressing the situation in Ukraine, and it was this, is it was yesterday I was, um, I was doom scrolling through news articles, uh, anybody else uh, find themselves sort of doom scrolling through the reports on Ukraine of late? Well I was doing so and I came across this headline, I don't know if you can read it, but the headline says, God has left Mariupol. Diary entries chart horror of besieged city in Ukraine. And you can see the kind of scorched earth devastation from a drone footage uh, above the city there, residential areas, the harbour area. And the story itself tells of the experiences of people who've been able to escape from Mar uh, Mariupol, mostly women and children, talking about their life experiences in Mariupol, uh, drawing largely on diary entries, uh, supplemented by interviews and, and reporting, of course. But it makes, as, as you can well imagine, pretty heart-rending reading. And I've just got a small snippet of it here from the story. I'll just let you read that. And of course, as, I, as I'm reading this, I'm, I'm thinking uh, about uh, Karina's aunt and family, wondering if they're still alive and wondering what sort of circumstances that they're in. But the headline, which is a quote, as you can see, from one young Ukrainian mum's neighbour, seems to say it all. Just a sense of abandonment. And it raises a really uncomfortable question for me today as I dare to stand up and talk about hope. And it's a question I couldn't sidestep. Where is God in this war? Or any war? How can we even start to talk about hope in the faith of such scenes? Uh, hope and faith in the face of such scenes. Whether it's war in Mariupol or the Yemen or the Tigray region of northern Ethiopia or any place affected by brutality, violence, famine, oppression or human suffering. These are the ultimate challenges to hope. And I have to be honest with you, I, I don't have the answers to these tough questions. I just don't. <laughs> even more so, in many ways, it would be trite, glib, and perhaps even insulting to the victims in these places. For me, a, a privileged, 
Western, affluent, middle-aged guy to try to provide some kind of absolutely confident answers from the comfort of my glorious isolation here in Australia today. But our topic today is hope. And it's a theme which recurs over and over in the Christian scriptures. So today I've, I've got to try. But I do so in humility and with some trepidation uh, that, I'm, that I may somehow diminish the suffering of the many living in these kind of nightmare situations, which you and I find hard to even imagine. But I have to try not only because the Christian scriptures compel us to talk about hope, We have to grapple with the subject of hope because it's something which remains vital to human existence, vital to human perseverance, vital to human resilience and well-being, even in the face of a dark and dangerous world in which we sometimes find ourselves. And we'll look at this much more closely in in two weeks' time when we're joined by local psychologist uh, Linda Rowland when we talk about hope and mental health. But just briefly today, numerous studies have shown the close link between hope and mental well-being. And in fact, even between faith and hope and mental well-being. But for now, perhaps it's enough to say with, if you'll forgive a little irony here, the great Russian novelist, Fyodor Dostoevsky, to live without hope is to cease to live. Might be nightly scenes from the nightly news, or it might be from your Facebook feed. But let me ask you two questions. What's challenging your hope at the moment? And on a scale of 1 to 10, where are you on the hope scale right now? What's your kind of hope score? Because of things in your own life and perhaps because of the things that you see around us. It might be something much closer to home, a burden you're carrying, a debt you can't repay, a marriage turning sour or a crisis you can't seem to escape, a ladder you can't seem to climb at work or a job you can't see clear to leave. So on a scale of 1 to 10, where's your heart at with hope at the moment? Because it seems that hope is under pressure on many fronts these days. Even if you're not a resident of Mariupol, or even not a resident of Eastern Europe, there's the impact of war even on those of us who live a long way away. Violence, conflict, anger and angst are in our faces and in our feeds 24-7. Threats of escalation, tactical nuclear weapons, Russia, Russia v NATO, China on the sidelines, China and Taiwan, uh, China in the Solomons. Add to that the, the devastating floods that we spoke about earlier as well and to which we've given some local funding much closer to home, homes and businesses affected to the point where there's real questions about whether some of the towns and city regions affected will be able to rebuild, especially in the same locations. And that, of course, follows the nigh-apocalyptic bushfires of just over two years ago, 
And the projections that many of these extreme weather events are not just the new normal, but they may get worse, maybe even much worse. And such projections are causing their own form of anxiety, particularly for young people, some of whom despair of politics in an increasingly polarised political environment, being able to collaboratively find solutions to some of the most significant problems of our time. And then, of course, even as the floodwaters subside, we're still wading through the hopefully waning waters of a global pandemic, which as of yesterday has accounted for 6.11 million deaths worldwide in the last two years, stretched health resources to and sometimes beyond breaking point, and added significantly to the anxiety and depression of young people. Anxiety and depression with which many were already struggling before the pandemic came along and before war broke out again in a place we thought we might not see it in our lifetime in Europe. Well, with all of these uh, contributing factors, it's probably no wonder that mental health challenges are rising. And again, we'll return to this in a couple of weeks' time, and I hope you'll join us for that, what I think should be really interesting session with Linda Rowland. But one study this uh, released this week found that in Australia... In the financial year 2020 to 2021, one in five uh, people in Australia experienced a mental health or behavioural condition. And this was actually the highest of any chronic illness or condition. The next highest was uh, chronic back problems. About 15% of the population reported chronic back problems. And for, uh, for mental health challenges, it was 20, over 20%. And it's not yet limited to young people, although it seems to bear a heavy burden uh, on the younger generations. Well, all of this seems to point simply to the fact that, that hope, so vital to human well-being, is in short supply at the moment. We're in a world, you might say, which finds itself with little reason to hope. But as I also said, hope is a central theme in the Christian uh, faith. In fact, hope is so central to the Christian faith that the famous German theologian Jürgen Moltmann uh, describes it like this. He says, hope is the medium of Christian faith as such, the key in which everything else is set, the glow that suffuses everything here in the dawn of an expected new day. For Christian faith lives from the raising of the crucified Christ and strains towards and after the promises of the future of Christ. Now, it's all a little bit theological there. But there's some beautiful imagery buried in all of that kind of theological discussion where he talks about hope being the key, like a musical key in which everything else in the Christian faith is set. Hope as being the dawning of a new day which throws its light onto everything else. And because it's such a pivotal theme in the Christian scriptures, uh, the Apostle Paul is able to describe the Christian God, God himself, as the God of hope. But even though it's such a major theme in our New Testament, I want to suggest to you that it's not only in our broader culture 
where hope is in short supply these days. And I'd like to suggest, in my usual little provocative style, that uh, those of us who identify as followers of Jesus also often have little hope. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, forgive us for a little bit of in-house talk this morning, but I'd welcome you on along on the ride and hope that there is still something helpful for you in this discussion. But if you are a follower of Jesus, I'd, I'd argue that our hope is too small in two ways. Firstly, uh, firstly, we're, we're only human. We're not immune to the challenges and impacts and even hopelessness of the world in which we live even those of us who identify as followers of Jesus are affected by the same events around us and infected by the decline of hope that those things can lead to. We are, we're children of our context. But the second way that we, we sometimes have too little hope is at the heart of what I want to suggest to you this morning and in fact next week as well. And that is that our hope may also be too small because at times perhaps our good news is too small. I'm going to have to unpack that right. So let me explain a little bit. In recent decades, our, our gospel and therefore our hope has often zeroed in on the individual human being. To be more specific, it's focused on me. It's focused on my sin, often understood as my moral failures. And hence, what I'd suggest has happened is that we have focused in on a part of the gospel story, an important part, perhaps even a central part, but not the whole of the story. The problem is, it's not even half the story, which I think is why so many of us today are half-hearted about the gospel and half-hearted about our hope. Our hope is too small because our gospel has shrunk a little. From the big, beautiful, multifaceted message of hope to a somewhat self-centered, one-dimensional micro-gospel, which sometimes can actually sound more like bad news than good news. I'm not going to dwell too much on that. And don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that that isn't a part of it. But I think when we look at the scriptures we find there's more to it. The good news about the good news is that the good news is much bigger. It's much better. And it's an even more compelling tale to tell than most of us realise. Because when we carefully read the whole of the New Testament, we find that hope for the salvation of individuals is embedded in a much greater vision of redemption. And that bigger vision of redemption can revolutionize our hope because it's going to revolutionize our world. Let me just tease you with that for a few minutes while we recap where we've come the last couple of weeks and I'll come back to it. We've seen in recent weeks in our series of God You Can Believe In that the early followers of Jesus of Nazareth were transformed from a ragtag bunch of dispirited, disillusioned disciples with a dead and buried dreams into an unstoppable force for good and good news. 
And they were transformed by the unshakable belief erupting a few days after Jesus' crucifixion that something extraordinary, unheard of, and entirely unexpected had happened. And whatever it was, it must have been extraordinary because this tiny flash-in-the-pan Jesus movement should have ended right there. Jesus' crucifixion, after all, was just one of thousands that happened across the Roman Empire. And the Romans were good at snuffing out uprisings by brutal and extended executions intended to humiliate the ringleaders, dissipate their followers, and dissuade anyone else from disrupting the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And like hundreds before him, Jesus of Nazareth was snuffed out in such a manner. That should have been it. It should have ended there. A forgotten footnote in the history of an extinct empire. Except it wasn't. Instead, a few weeks later, there were thousands of new converts who would subsequently spread goodwill and good news to scores of cities, many putting their lives on the line to do so. And within a few decades, there were growing groups of Jesus freaks all across the empire. And within a few centuries, the empire itself, after sporadically attempting to suppress this new movement with more or less enthusiastic oppression, would itself convert to this unlikely faith. All because of Easter. Or more accurately, because of what we remember at Easter. A cross and an empty tomb. And soon after, an unshakable belief that the dead, buried and decomposing Jesus just wouldn't stay dead. As the British theologian Alistair McGrath writes, the New Testament is saturated with the belief that something new happened in the history of humanity in and through the life and death of Jesus Christ and above all through his resurrection from the dead. And so I argued a few weeks ago that the resurrection changed everything for the disciples. But today and next week, I want to go a little bit further and argue that it not only changed everything for the disciples, it not only changed everything for history, it also changed the future. It launched a revolution, not the violent human kind of revolution, a divine revolution, a revolution of redemption and a revolution of hope. Tim Keller, the uh, pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York, says, If Jesus was raised from the dead, it changes everything. It changes how we conduct relationships. It changes our attitudes towards wealth and power. It changes how we work in our vocations, our understanding and practice of sexuality, of race relations and justice. And I think that Keller is mostly right. But I think he even undersells the significance of the resurrection a little. Because if Jesus was raised from the dead, it not only changes how we do things and how we think about things and how we conduct ourselves, Sure, it should change all of those things, but it also changes the destiny of a disordered creation. It breaks the curse of death and decay that hangs over the cosmos, a curse which somehow in a strange way that we don't fully understand has subjected the very planet we live on as well as its peoples to bondage, 
to darkness and the liberation of the planet itself as well as its peoples is part, a key part, a bigger part even of the Christian hope. Now, where do I get all of that from, uh, you're possibly wondering? Well, I get it from Paul. Paul, writing in the book of Romans, says this. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. And he goes on to say, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. And I'll let you finish reading that for a moment. In other words, creation itself is not as it should be, but will be renewed in some kind of cataclysmic moment of cosmic liberation. This is what the New Testament refers elsewhere to as the new creation. Further, we also see here that followers of Jesus are not just awaiting liberation from creation as some kind of immortal souls floating off into heaven, but we await the redemption of creation and our own full and final adoption as children through the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, Paul writes, we were saved. Our hope then isn't just heaven when we die, but it's for redemption of us as embodied people. The redemption of an embodied world in which we live. In short, a resurrected people on a resurrected planet. But this hope is, is hidden, Paul says. You won't find it in the headlines or the newspaper articles, day to day, week to week. Paul says we have to wait patiently in the midst of all of the suffering which we experience right now. But we wait with hope, knowing that even our present sufferings, or perhaps Paul was referring specifically to his present sufferings and those of the Jesus community around him. But we can endure those things because somehow the future glory will make even those things seem in somehow less significant in time. It's the resurrection of Jesus himself that gives us confidence that we too will experience this resurrection. The resurrection is, as Paul writes elsewhere, uh, sorry, the resurrection of Jesus is, as Paul writes elsewhere, the first fruits of uh, a much bigger resurrection to come. A way of saying a deposit, a down payment, or just the start of the whole harvest that is to come. For, uh, as Paul writes, as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Hence, Jesus' resurrection isn't just the forerunner of our own. It's actually the start 
of the new creation amid the own. This is what is launched on Easter Sunday. The beginning of a new creation in the midst of the old. As Peter puts it, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, we receive a living hope. So in the Easter story, therefore, we find hope, not just that Jesus died for our sins, although that's true. In the cross and resurrection, Jesus overcomes evil itself, not just on a personal level, but on a cosmic scale. The unthinkable occurred. Death's tyranny over all created beings was dealt a deadly blow. Its perfect record was ruptured and ruined. The ultimate inescapable endpoint of human existence was suddenly overcome. Life had conquered death. So when Jesus died and rose again, it was for me, but not just for me. It was for the healing of the world. And while now the effects of that seem hidden, maybe even just partial and provisional, in Christ, God has set a deadline on death, a timeline to bring an end to evil once and for all. And so in the book of Revelation, we find this vision of a future. A vision where John writes of a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth has passed away. He said, I see a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride dressed beautifully for her husband. He says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne says, I am making everything new. So here we see the coming together of heaven and earth, a new creation. Rather than some souls ascending into heaven, the new Jerusalem, the city of peace, the city of Shalom, descends from heaven to earth, bringing with it God's own immediate presence so that God reign, God's reign, his kingdom come, is now among his people. And there is no more death, mourning, crying or pain. Because the old order of things, the fallen human structures, violent empires and authority systems, all things infected with human evil will be no more. And there is no more death. If we had time, we could look also at Revelation 22, in which we see not only a city, but a new garden. Harking back to the original story of creation in Genesis, we see a life-giving river and a tree of life, a tree which brings healing, John says, to the nations. So what does all this mean for us today? Well, Stanley Grenz, the, the Canadian theologian, put it this way. God is directing his actions towards an all-encompassing goal, the transformation of the entire cosmos into the glorious eternal community of the new creation. 
But it also means that we have a job to do. As Tom Wright said, says, on this side of the resurrection of Jesus, while we await this future, he says, the work of the church is to implement the resurrection of Jesus and thereby to anticipate the final new creation. He says, God began something, God launched something when Jesus came out of the tomb on Easter day and what was launched was a new creation and we are called to be people of new creation now in the power of the Spirit. We might say that our calling to be new creation people who live in light of the future in the present means that we work to bring hope, healing, goodness and the good news to the world in anticipation of the day when all our diary entries and our daily experiences of suffering will end and be no more. What this means for us, too, is that we can join the revolution that started with the empty tomb, the hope uh, revolution, the resurrection revolution. As one of our songs by Michaela said earlier, the tomb remains open. Jesus has won, but there's still work to do. It starts, as the Swiss theologian Karl Barth says, with prayer. He said to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. And he writes that in context of talking about the Lord's Prayer, where we pray, God, your kingdom come, your will be done. But it also means living in accordance with our own prayer, living in alignment with what we pray for God's kingdom to come. And it means, therefore, sometimes following Jesus into the darkness to light a candle of hope. Because hope doesn't deny that darkness exists. Hope is needed precisely because darkness exists. Hope is needed precisely because light is needed in the darkness. And sometimes, as we've seen so vividly and so heart-rendingly, this means helping people escape from human evil in our fallen world, refugees fleeing for their lives from death and destruction. But it also means hope that when the story of suffering ends, we're not just going to be refugees fleeing a world of death and destruction. Rather, it means hope that God in Christ will do away with death and destruction from our earthly home. Evil will end, suffering will cease, and the Lord himself will wipe every tear from every eye. Which brings us back to where we started. The question, where is God in Mariupol? And we dare not make light of life in that living hell. But the Easter story suggests that Jesus, God is there. And God is there in the crucified Christ, in suffering solidarity with those who suffer the violence and brutality that they do. And he's there in solidarity with their sense of abandonment. For it was Christ who cried from the cross the words of the psalmist, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's, he's there too in the promise 
that one day this too shall end. Not just in weeks and in months, but once and for all. This war and all wars will end. The guns one day will fall silent. And he is there in the hope of resurrection. Resurrection of Mariupol, of Chernihiv, and all the Mariupols, which currently find themselves living in the gap between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Between crucifixion and violence and suffering and destruction. And resurrection again on the final day. Between the visitation of violence by the world and its tyrannies upon innocent victims and the moment when a new city descends and a new world is born, when the refugees return once and for all and darkness is banished eternally. In the meantime, as Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who passed away uh, on Boxing Day last year, and who endured decades of apartheid in South Africa, said, Hope is being able to see there is a light despite all the darkness. It doesn't deny the darkness, but hope does deny darkness the final word. Hope knows that a new day has dawned, even though the sun has not yet fully risen above the horizon. And hope knows with my friend Karina that even this darkness, even your darkness, whatever it might be that is challenging your hope today, is bound by a deadline that God himself has placed on suffering, on mourning, on grief and tears. Because this was the most hopeful line from my friend Karina's email this week. As she waits anxiously for news from Mariupol, she wrote, I keep reminding myself, we know the end of the story. When God finally says, enough, I am making all things new. So here are some takeaway questions for us today. Where are you at with hope at the moment? Into what situation do you need to find hope right now? Or in what situation can you bring some hope right now? Offer some hope. Reach out a hand of hope. Speak some words of hope. Some questions to dwell on. What for you is the basis for hope? How healthy is your hope right now? How would you rate your current hope, health, if you like, on a scale of 10? And how can you bring hope to someone else this week? And by the way, if you're scoring kind of low on the hope scale at the moment. Let me encourage you to reach out for help. If anything I said today triggers uh, dark feelings for you, then reach out and find some support. Our pastoral team is here, but you may also need professional help. And I'd encourage you not to be uh, 
afraid to reach out for such. But maybe you're in a position where you can offer someone else hope this week. and Let me encourage you to do so. In the study notes that we send out after our sermons each week, there'll be a little bit more on this uh, for you to chew on. If you're part of a home group that uses the study notes, then um, I hope you'll explore this idea of a bigger gospel than we've often perhaps known or heard. Look into it some more. Uh, We'll send out some tips and hints on further resources. But even if you're not part of a a Bible study group or something, uh, maybe you can grab hold of those study notes and think through these topics yourself. Well, just quickly looking forward to next week, Today we've talked about hope in light of the new creation. Next week we'll see how Luke's claim that that God has made this Jesus Lord and Messiah and Paul's claim that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus the Messiah is Lord, how those things relate to the divine revolution of hope through the theme of the kingdom of God. And I'll just get the band to come come up now to finish with our song as we wrap up. Let me pray. Lord, if our hope is challenged or if we find ourselves at very least in a world where hope is challenged, where people young and old are are struggling with their mental well-being, struggling to find hope to hold on to, we pray that you'd speak to us, that you'd minister your hope to our hearts, that we'd find in the scriptures in the community, communion with the people around us, resources to rebuild our hope, to find our hope finally not in just a future, but a person, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. We pray that you would give us living hope, Whatever our circumstances, whatever our sense of despair at the world, you would bring living hope into our hearts. And we pray that you'd also make us agents of hope, agents of change in the world through the good news and through good works. And we pray this in Jesus' name.